This week's podcast is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the dedicated team at Salesforce that delivers technology to non-profits, educational institutions and philanthropic organisations so they can connect with others and do more good. Salesforce.org empowers higher education with its Education Cloud, a set of integrated solutions built on the world's number one CRM. In today's fast-moving world, leveraging technology is essential to deliver the personalised, proactive and continuous experiences each student expects. But how can institutions embrace digital transformation and how can they leverage technology to improve the student experience, achieve operational excellence and strengthen their relationships with the community they serve? With a desire to help the community find answers to these questions, Salesforce.org launched the Higher Ed Summit in the US eight years ago and has gathered thousands of higher ed professionals to share insights and connect with peers annually ever since. To better serve their growing community of education trailblazers in Europe, the team has launched a regional summit called the Higher Ed Summit Horizons. And this year, Salesforce.org invites every higher ed professional and institution leader to join the ranks in Paris on the 10th of October and be inspired by pioneers in higher ed digital transformation. From building brand awareness, transforming the applicant experience, enhancing student services, building lifelong alumni relationships, or managing change and optimising technology across the campus, you'll hear from pioneers who have paved the way for the future of higher education and have driven all kinds of innovations at their institutions. The EdTech podcast will be at the event, moderating a panel discussion and conducting interviews with those shaping higher education. Come and join us and have a chat. Register today at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using our special code edtech50 to get 50% off your ticket. Not only will you get a chance to connect with professionals like yourself who are transforming learning, but you'll also hear from Graham Brown Martin, author and broadcaster of Learning Reimagined and founder of Learning Without Frontiers. Again, registration is at sfdc.co forward slash horizons 2019 using the special code edtech50 to get 50% off the ticket. And all details are available via our show notes for this episode at the edtechpodcast.com. Okay, let's go. and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. This past week has been half term for many in the UK and a great chance to recharge the batteries. I spent three days in the sea learning how to surf and I'm delighted to say that in some form or another I got up on the board. Needless to say there was a lot of falling off and getting hit by waves before that happened. Thanks to Sunny Tan who left us a listener voicemail this week. Sunny is listening in as a psychology student at the University of York in the UK, aiming to integrate positive psychology back into public Chinese schools after her study and move beyond cramming to motivation in learning. Pretty aspirational stuff. So here she is. Hi, this is Sunny from Malaysia. I have been following and listening to EdTech Podcast for almost half a year now. Absolutely love the channel and um, what Sophie is contributing to the 
ed and tech community. Um, I think this channel really got me to think about how um, technology can really push education to a whole new level. When I, I, I remember when I first heard about how um, some schools have been using apps that can customize uh, learning for customized homework for students and to decrease the workload for teachers. I just think the entire conversation that Sophie helps um, bring to help start between um, people from a tech background and people from an education background and really building that, that um, cohesive picture. I think that's amazing what, uh, what, what Sophie is um doing so keep up the good work i'm excited to to hear more from you guys um and yeah thank you thanks sunny if you'd like to leave a listener voicemail just go to speakpipe.com forward slash the edtech podcast thank you also to our newest patron supporter working under the pseudonym slarty bartfast from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy fame who wrote in to say they binge listened to six episodes of the podcast over the last week after being recommended by a listener from the University of Portsmouth. So welcome and thank you to Slarty Bartvast for your patron support and to the Portsmouth Uni listener who recommended you. Brilliant to have both of you checking in. If you'd like to become a supporter of the EdTech podcast, you can go to theedtechpodcast.com and click donate. Sticking on the funding theme... Nesta have just announced their EdTech Innovation Fund, which will provide grants of up to £100,000 for up to 20 organisations to improve, evaluate and grow the reach of digital products across four challenge areas. Those being formative assessment, essay marking, parental engagement and timetabling. You can apply for up to £100,000 and the deadline is the 15th of July at 9am. So don't oversleep on that day. What else this week? Google have released an in-browser podcast player, which is great news for the gazillions of you who have an Android phone. We'll spam the link everywhere. And before we kick off, a few event-related bits. If you're listening in real time, I'm going to be attending both Future EdTech and London EdTech Week in London during the next few weeks. There are product discounts for both and all details are in our show notes on the website. If you're not listening in real time, please forget I ever mentioned a thing. Right, that's all of our newsy bits out of the way. This week's episode is a live recording at Wise Paris earlier this year, where we cover T-shaped learners, that's both broad and deep, what Greek mythology can tell us about the modern day role of the mentor, and how formative culture and parents are in the learning journey. Naturally, we throw in a bit of machine learning, investment and pedagogy for a fine recipe for your ears. Stay in touch and have a great week. Good morning. Welcome to the Ideas Stage. Uh, My name's Sophie Bailey and uh, I'm the founder and host of the EdTech podcast. So today's discussion is on the future of learning and I'm really delighted to have two special guests the, fr- the first you may have heard of, uh, Francois Tadai, uh, director for Cree here in Paris, and also uh, an ex-guest on the EdTech podcast, Joel Hellemark, founder of Sana Labs. So without further ado, we'll uh, begin our discussion, and there'll be 10 minutes at the end for questions, and I do encourage you to jump in with many of those. 
Okay, well, welcome both of you. Um, first question really is, um, we're thinking about the future of learning. So what fosters learning and what might hinder learning? Yeah, so that, that's, that's a huge question. I think uh, um, if we look at from, from our angle, uh, what we're focusing on is essentially how can you bring uh, machine learning to, to the education industry to drive learning outcomes and, and engagement. And we focus primarily on the first two steps of sort of Bloom's taxonomy. And we, when we look at that data, uh, what seems to drive a lot of learning is the curiosity. And it's interesting to look at curiosity from a data point of view. So how could you find curiosity in, in data? And what we found is that what seems to be sort of optimal for curiosity to drive engagement and learning outcomes is when students have around 70% probability of getting the exercises or the challenges correctly. So it's essentially not too hard, but neither too easy. So I think uh, that's really interesting how we've been able to see how sort of curiosity um, drives engagement and how uh, curiosity is directly correlated with uh, the difficulty of the exercises. Okay. And Francois, what's your, what's your opinion on this question? Well, I agree with the importance of curiosity. I would add that um, motivation is key. Uh, and, you know, the motiva motivation can come from curiosity, but it can come from need. It can come from, you know, some interest that you have for a subject. Because, for instance, you are interested in the climate change and your concern and suddenly you want to know. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that one of the things that can be done is to uh, contribute to do something that is meaningful. If what you do is meaningful, then of course you're motivated, okay? And that's typically, you know, the notion of meaning is not necessarily in the center of the stage of the education uh, discussion, unfortunately, uh, too often. But I think we can, we can do this. And I think it's even more important to do it in the age of AI, not only because AI might help us, but also because one of the things that AI doesn't do is define what's meaningful. Uh, AI, you know, optimizes, opt uh, AI analyzes the data, but what this data means for you as an human beings is not something an AI can really help you with. Um, one, uh, having uh, spoken to you before last year um, at South by Southwest, um, you were very passionate about polymathematical thinking and, and this idea of, you know, crossing the sciences and the arts. And uh, Franco, I'd love to know more about Cree's kind of perspective on this. And then perhaps we could dig into the future of learning and, and this idea of, you know, gaining skills and learning across the arts and sciences as well. Yeah, I think we, we separated art and science, but, you know, uh, great uh, examples of the past have shown us that uh, this is not what we should be doing. Uh, if you look at, for instance, the contribution of the best scientists of the 20th century, most of them were also artists. Okay. So, I mean, I think we have to uh, realize that uh, we have different modes of thinking. Some of them are more uh, logical and rational and others are more intuitive and, and maybe artistic. And we should foster both and we should foster the communication in our own brains between the two. Uh, and certainly across brains uh, by inviting artists and scientists to discuss with one another. And so we've launched programs that do exactly this. You know, we have one program that we co-designed in China that's called Open Fiesta. Okay? And it's the open faculty for open innovation, open education, open science, open technology and open art. Because we, we want the students to tack into all of those uh, and use it to build projects that are truly meaningful for them and that you know, may relate to uh, the sustainable environmental goals uh, that are you know, or planetary goals. So 
That's interesting. And when we come to questions, I'd love to invite the audience to share any examples of this kind of interdisciplinarity um, within their own countries. I mean, in the UK, we've got um, more examples of this popping up. So we've got the um, London Interdisciplinary School set up by Ed Fido, and we've got a lovely acronym NMITE. A big um, part of both of these is, is this kind of... Um, project-based education and bringing the industry in and sharing ideas and it being you know far less about um, uh, entry requirements and exams at the end of it but more about kind of learning you know with industry and with real world problems um, for the London interdisciplinary interdisciplinary school um, they're very much about um, you know, equipping everyone with these kind of uh, global competency skills, as we can call them, and then going into a specialism, which might help with, with thinking about the world's great problems. So um, I just wondered, you know, how are you both seeing this play out in terms of uh, other projects around the world and, you know, how we might go about developing education to be more inclusive in this way? So I think we've seen great examples of that both in Sweden and, and in Finland. And so one program that's, uh, that's run in, in Sweden is the Model European Parliament. So you essentially work on, on developing these motions. And these motions require you to combine your expertise in economics, in, in math, in natural sciences to come up with novel solutions. Um, and, and, I, and, 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 and if you look at the Finnish, um, Finnish school system, they're, they're using the equivalent as well. They're, they're moving away from these sort of artificial separations of subjects. Physics has a lot to do with, with maths and, and, and so forth. And, and, and having them in individual subjects really doesn't make sense. So I think Model European Parliament is, is such a great example of this interdisciplinary work uh, sort of in action. One example I really love, and unfortunately the friend that uh, is responsible for this couldn't come. Uh, the best school in the world, according to the Lego Foundation, is based in Haiti. Okay? So that's not necessarily the place that people would expect by default. But very interestingly, this is a place where uh, it's not that they don't have problems, but they take the problems as a source of motivation for the students. So, you know, for a semester, they do relatively classical things, but for the next semester, it's only project-based, but not project-based given by adults. It's project-based defined by the children, okay? And they do this from 6 to 18, uh, and they identify a problem that touched them, and then they look into, you know, what science and technology and art and, and all those combinations can do to uh, have a positive impact on their uh, environment. And, you know, this school is, for me, a model. Uh, and I think we need more of those schools. I think we need to create labels of UNESCO, uh, labeling schools that are engaged for the sustainable environmental goals. I think we need a label for universities that want to engage with sustainable environmental goals. I think, you know, I, there is a, a master in Geneva in Singwa, for instance, that is uh, doing... Uh, inviting students to mobilize all the disciplines just to identify solutions. So the, the students use the, the discipline as uh, tools, not as aims uh, in themselves. Okay? There are tools to help the students contribute to do something that is truly meaningful and impactful. And if you create a database of those curricula uh, and you use a sort of a GitHub type of platform in order where you could share those curricula and you could fork them, and you can adapt them to your needs uh, wherever you are. Are you in Haiti, in Sweden, or in Geneva, or elsewhere? You know, can we uh, globally document this and share it? And I think that uh, students are very motivated by things like that. One of the things that became viral is Design for Change. And uh, Florence, that just talked in the previous panel, is uh, doing the, the French version of this. But you know, those are programs that invite children mm -hmm. to start from something that 
touch them. Uh, and then they have to imagine a solution for this problem that you know, is deeply resonating with them. And then they have to do something about it. They have to implement at least one ID and then they have to share what they've done. So, I mean, those are very simple principles and they develop not only creativity, empathy, critical thinking, and, and, but also the ability to cooperate and to learn a lot of basic skills so you can, you know, have all of it at once. So, I think, I think it's really interesting because it's, you know, basically putting forward the idea that these collaborative skills, these um, kind of soft skills for a want of a better term, um, are really essential um, to our future learning and future problem solving. Um, but there's quite often this notion that um, you can't measure these types of skills, which seems, I mean, I tend to disagree with because we know there's studies coming out of Harvard and Cambridge and, you know, there's simulation work, which is identifying individual effort in, in group works as well. So on, with both of your projects, how do you go about measuring some of those softer skills uh, and, you know, how might those in the audience sort of benefit from, from these kind of ways of doing so? Um, so, so first of all, we don't focus too much on the on the softer skills with our software. So, I think for for us, it's been been important to to really limit uh, where we apply our technology, and we focus on the uh, foundational knowledge, the conceptual understanding, understanding the core facts, remembering them, retaining, and and so on. So that's where we focused uh, to date. However, I see huge opportunity long term to also be able to to measure these soft skills. And if we look at education more broadly, one difficulty has been is that um, we sort of uh, the the assessment has been so core so if we can't assess these skills they also get sort of uh, hard to implement in the school systems um, so I think new measurements uh, I think if you look at sort of the equivalent of the SAT in, in five years or five to ten years it probably wouldn't wouldn't be SAT but it would be a, a measurement a simulation that could capture much more nuances of the students their grit, uh, resi the resilience, the, the collaborative skills and so on, which we've seen are, are so much more important um, uh, later on in, in, in their careers. And I think um, artificial intelligence can play a, play a big role in, in capturing these, uh, these, these nuances. However, I, I feel that we're, 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 we're far from there at the moment. And, and now the first applications we can see of, of machine learning ed in education is personalization of these more foundational skills. I think it's an open question that no one has the answer to. Okay? Some, there is some interesting attempts here and there, uh, but there's still a lot of discussion. But I think what we should do is build a sort of a citizen science approach to it mm -hmm. okay? and invite everyone to say, okay, what are 21st century skills? Because, you know, there is so many different uh, lists. Uh, already, you know, having, uh, is there a consensus or not? Is it regional? Is it depend on, you know, the value set that you have and, and, and so on? So on the age uh, range of the children and, and, and so forth. So I think, you know, that's first something, you know, what would they be? And then how would you measure them? Okay? And there could be thousands of ways of measuring them and there probably no single solution, even though, you know, some, you know, people might say, you know, my solution has to be best because it's mine. Okay? But, you know, can we be a slightly more open uh, conversation around these things? And more generally, I think, you know, if you want to investigate the future of learning, you have to ask the learners themselves. Uh, you know, how would they want their empathy to be assessed, for instance, okay? Is there, uh, you know, a machine to assess their empathy or, you know, is there other ways uh, to do that? And not only yeah. assess it, to assess it, but assess it to help them 
progress and, and develop it further. And, and then I think, you know, through maybe simulation games and these sorts of things, you might be able to put them in situations that are a little more realistic uh, than, say, just a quiz. And, and then maybe measure something like empathy. I think this is really interesting because, you know, we quite often bandy around sort of the idea of global competencies and, and so on at these events. And, um, you know, for many people, actually, it's just about having local opportunities is, is, is really essential. Um, uh, if we're thinking about the future of learning, part of that is also, you know, how do we make sure that the technology that, uh, you know, you're using for good um, doesn't further the gap between the haves and the have-nots and I'd love to know your thoughts on uh, you know how we go about doing that through education as well. Yeah so I actually think I think the students that are benefiting the most from these applications are actually the students that historically have fallen behind and uh, it's this whole concept of sort of uh, throughout your school, school years you just compound these uh, uh, these errors so if you'd only pass sort of 70% of, of your first year and then 70% of the following year you sort of compound these knowledge gaps really um, whereas with these machine learning systems you're really trying to teach for mastery so you're trying to get every single student to 100% and one difficulty historically is that you don't know what you don't know. But these systems can capture it and then provide you uh, with a personalized curriculum that helps you achieve full, full mastery. And if we look at most of the research, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation has done a lot of research in, in these aspects. And, and time and time again, I think where you see that the biggest improvements is, is really in the students that have historically lagged behind. So I think, um, I think uh, that machine learning in, in education will be more of an equalizer uh, than perhaps in, in, in other industries. So I would agree with this with one condition. Uh, I'll, so I'll first start with why I agree, and I think that it's not only a school curricula that machine learning can help with. Uh, I think machine learning can help us explore the future of jobs, for instance. Okay, If there is a new job opportunity, how far are you from that job opportunity in terms of skills and knowledge? Okay, Can we have a sort of a knowledge map and a GPS of knowledge where you would know where you are in the knowledge space, you would know where there is a job opportunity and you would know what are the fastest routes that can help you to go from where you are to where you could go. And, you know, there might be thousands of ways and there might be people around you that have done part of that path and they may want to discuss with you. So that's, uh, I agree with this, that can be very positive. But the, uh, I want to go to the risk, okay? And the risk is if you make this a private good, Mm -hmm. then only those that can pay for it will, will use it. Yeah. Whereas education and knowledge should be public goods. So, you know, I have a real issue with this. And, you know, I think it's time for, to discuss with governments and international bodies like UNESCO and, and, and so on to make sure that whatever comes from the best ways of learning would be accessible to everyone on the planet. Uh, because otherwise, you would hugely increase uh, the gap that already exists. Yeah, and, and just to build on top of this, I, I think that's where, where we're doing a lot of work. So we partner up with, with big publishers and education companies, but we also give our, provide our, our technology for, for free to non-profits. So I think now for the first time, sort of the non-profits of the world are accessing this state-of-the-art machine learning technology. Um, and I think for us, it's really about, so it's like our, our, our end game is really personalized education for everyone everywhere. And, and uh, uh, and I think uh, we, we could really drive personalization to ubiquity using these technologies. Um, but we have to partner with the right organizations, as you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, there is so much knowledge on the web. The the, one of the problems is that the quality of what you can find on the web is super heterogeneous. 
Okay, so you know sometimes some of the free material is not the best quality. Sometimes it's not true. You know, say Wikipedia is a good example of the best quality accessible to all. The question is, you know, how do we build uh, on you know the commons typically and use the, the sort of strategy that Wikipedia has used and maybe uh, new ones uh, that can help build uh, on the collective intelligence of everyone. Because if everyone contributes to build new knowledge, uh, then everyone should access to it. Okay, and so this way you could. Re- Really uh, build an infrastructure of knowledge where everyone can access uh, every uh, part of the best uh, dimensions of knowledge. But you have to deal with fake news and all these things. And 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 there, you know, there might be a solution that also comes from AI okay. and the collective intelligence combined. So now the real discussion starts. Um, who has any questions for our esteemed panelists today? I'll take three and then we'll answer them in in one batch. So who's going to jump in with the first question? Brave, brave soul there. Hi. Oh, yes. Okay. It works. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, the value of uh, interdisciplinary, uh, you know, approach to to education learning. Uh, one problem that I I have um, I I think a lot of people face is the um, it is great to to be uh, interdisciplinary in one's approach to learning and research. But when it comes to the job market, people look for purists. People look for you know. Uh, who are uh, people who are intense and 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 narrow narrow in one particular field? So how how do you how do you uh, 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 you know s- solve this this problem from the perspective of job seekers? Uh, because in the in the uh, inter- interdisciplinary the market for interdisciplinary is very very narrow. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so so I think we take the three questions. Oh, yeah, we take one more. Oh, sorry. Sure. Uh, thank you very much. It's quite enlightening. Uh, my name is Edzai. I'm from South Africa. And uh, I sort of find out uh, Jeremy Rifkin, one of the eminent uh, economists, has been talking about the zero marginal costs of uh, information, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, driving the network society and the creative commons. So, in terms of business models for education startups like some of us, uh, where do we stand? I mean, when we if if we are to follow the creative commons and uh, GitHub type of uh, models, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, we we'll go with those two. Um, yeah, so I could, I could start. I could start with the first. So if you if you look at sort of the engineering talent, we look like we we search for it's sort of this T-shaped engineer. So I think it's good with people who are specialists, but um, but who also have broad skills. So we look for that combination. Some people who are really strong in particular areas, but also know a bit of of all of the other areas uh, uh, as well. Um, and I think that's sort of um, what what we should teach as well. This sort of T-shaped skills. Um, you can go deep into math, but you should also know how it applies to all of these other fields and have a foundational understanding of it. Because if you only know in, uh, computer science, if you only know math and so on, you can't really make, make use of it effectively. But you have to understand the apl- applications of it. And then the second question is highly interesting as well, but maybe you want to jump on it. Um, yeah, I agree with the T-shape. And I think that you know we can... Um see uh, skills as, as dynamic anyway. 
Okay. And we are lifelong learners. And so you might have a relatively general uh, education to begin with, but uh, whenever it's needed, you should be able to go very deep in what you need to learn. And that could be for, you know, the end of your master, your PhD, uh, or, you know, because for a specific job, you're going to have to go very deep into uh, some specific knowledge that you can add to the general uh, backbone that you, you built before. And in terms of the economic model, um, I think GitHub indeed is a very interesting model. Uh, as you know, it's free uh, for users that play the game of the commons, uh, and it's only if you want some private services uh, and some privacy for you know uh, what you do that you will have to pay. And so I think we can do similar things. You know, for instance, uh, uh, the the perfect. Um, knowledge guide or knowledge mentor slash AI that could be built might be free for all learners on the planet. But if you want to use it for a for-profit purpose within a company, then you know you can sell services to that company because that company may not want to share uh, their knowledge with all the rest of the world. But a learner that is, is uh, willing to share their knowledge and their um, ability to co-construct their own knowledge and the one of the of the global pool uh, should be uh, have access to it freely so i think we we have to be very creative in in those things and and i think you know uh, public service or, or, or taxpayers could be uh, subsidizing some of this. For instance, in France now, uh, every citizen um, that is employed has 500 to 800 euros a year to spend for their lifelong learning. And so far, they have to spend it in a sort of a fixed uh, set of companies that sell services uh, for training. But I think tomorrow... Uh, I would rather pay, I mean, I, I never use this uh, personally, but I would be very happy if I could give my 500 euros to Wikipedia, for instance, or to, you know, someone working on Creative Commons that helped me to learn something that was truly useful for me, maybe a blogger or, you know, someone like this. So I think we, we should rethink um, not only the knowledge society, but also the acknowledgement society, okay? And we should give resource and acknowledge those that help us to learn. And so we have to be creative in, even in the economic model. I think that's quite interesting. I was moderating a panel a couple of weeks back and there was a, a company there called BitDegree, I think they were called. And, and it's like a kind of closed, um, uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, platform between learners and um, kind of resource developers, essentially um, underpinned by the blockchain. Um, but my question there was, you know, we've, we've had these kind of before um, in, a, in a more kind of... Um, in a less sophisticated way with TS resources. So how do, you, how do you prevent the resources from sort of fading away and becoming irrelevant? How do we make sure that the community keeps them high quality and, and monitored in that way? But I think that's why universities should be a play, play a key role. Okay? My problem with universities is that they do research on everything but not on themselves, or very rarely on themselves. Okay? But I think they play a key role in the knowledge society and they should um, redesign their own model uh, because they are not only knowledge... Uh, producer and a place to acquire some of this knowledge, but also a place to certify that some knowledge is of higher quality than others. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that universities at large should play a key role in helping to identify what is the most relevant. Not that they should become a new censorship bureau, okay? but that they should put labels on things in which you know, is truly better from their perspective. And of course, not all academics have the same perspective on the value of any piece of knowledge. So you'll have you know, open debates, but you, know, you would have the position of 
the, any citizen could have their opinion on the quality of knowledge. But you know, if you are an expert in a field, your weight should be stronger. But if you have a Nobel Prize in medicine, your weight in, uh, say, music doesn't have to, to be strong. Unless um, you're a musical medical person. <laughs> which might happen, because, you know, musical therapy exists. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do we have time for one more? Yep. Uh, Jordan Naidu from UNESCO. Uh, my question uh, for both the presenters, we've been talking about rethinking learning. Uh, one of the keys in the learning process, as we traditionally know, are teachers. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion yesterday in a few panels on the role of teachers. Mm -hmm. How do you see the role of the teacher changing? Uh, I, I think this is a question that always plagued us. I can recall I did my own teacher training nearly 40 years ago. And in my undergraduate work, uh, a book that was prescribed, which I think still has relevance today, uh, by Wayne Gartner and Postman called Teaching as a Subversive activity. Mm -hmm. I think we, we need it even more today. So what's your view on teachers and their role? So, so we actually, we, um, we recently published this, this case study of, uh, of, um, of how, how teachers were using our technology in, in schools and, and, and it turned out these teachers were saving seven hours uh, a week just on creating assessments, uh, creating these personalized study plans as a function of the assessments. So all those sort of low-level work that they pre previously had to do, uh, they'd been able to automate with the help of, uh, of our, our technologies. What that then freed up uh, more time for is these more critical skills, um, having group assignments, interdisciplinary work, project-based learning, and stimulating those learning environments. So what I really hope that machine learning could free us up from is these assessments. Um, I think in the future we won't have to do assessments like every third month or so because the assessments will be continuous. You'll be doing assessments every single day as you interact with the learning material and then as a function of that the next, the next uh, task you should work on will, will, will be, be recommended. And that will free up teachers' time to focus much more on this project-based uh, learning. Uh, and that's what we saw in, in this case study in South Korea. I I think what's really interesting about that is on the discussion over here this morning, they were saying that, you know, there's a lot of chat about guide on the side, which is kind of what you're describing. But there isn't actually that much chat about how do you help teachers transition into this. And at the same time, teacher development trusts were on this stage. So I'm sure the answer to that question might have been, you know, being discussed here. But it's an so important one. To, to answer the, the, those uh, different points, I think that we should see teachers as learners. Um, and, you know, they should be learning all the time. And I think, you know, it's true of every one of us. We are all lifelong learners, but teachers have a, a key role because, you know, they are responsible for at least inviting kids to learn how to learn and, you know, be able to develop all sorts of critical skills, including critical thinking, for instance, okay? But creativity, empathy, and, and all those things. And maybe, you know, the last things we learn from a human is how to be a human, Okay? Maybe we'll learn everything else from the machine, but you know, the machine won't know exactly what it is to be a human. And, and so that might be what will be left uh, ultimately. And it might evolve. You know, all of our jobs are going to evolve because you know, every, everything a machine does better than we do, you know, maybe we should leave it to the machine. But there are things that we do so much better than machines, we should really focus on those. And we should focus on the complementarities. But that means you know, being able to learn and reflect on you know, what it is to be human. Uh, I think we should all ask our question uh, like this, but especially teachers. And where's the added values? And maybe we should go back to the you know, wisdom of the past. You know, we need ancestral intelligence, another form of AI. You know, ancestral intelligence and not only artificial intelligence. Uh, for instance, um, 
in their Greek uh, ancestry, and I'm sure that in the room there is enough wisdom from different cultures that we should be able to crowdsource and combine to go deeper. But the Greek had a fantastic mentor. Mentor is a human being to begin with. Okay, He was the mentor of Telemachus, and he was helping Telemachus survive in a complex environment when he was looking for his father. So uh, I think we need these sorts of, of mentorship. And in fact, Telemachus had some help because Mentor was also held by Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom and science. So maybe, you know, that's what teachers should be, gods of wisdom and science. How many people, how many people have we got in the room that studied philosophy at any one time? Oh, that's brilliant. So, yeah, you're going to be fine. Uh, don't worry about that. Um, so, do we have time for one more question? Or we know we have come to an end. So, thank you so much to my wonderful thank panelists. Thank uh, you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We're busy working out our series calendar for 2019. If you'd like to support a forthcoming series, do get in touch and we can share the details. Bye-bye.